Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your idealistic co-host, Robert J. Marks. I'm joined today by co-host bagpipe-playing Brian R. Krause, who, along with Angus Manoj and me, recently published the book Minding the Brain. And yes, Brian Krause plays the bagpipes. It's true. It's true. Has nothing to do with today's podcast, but it's uh, it, it's kind of an interesting fact. Brian, it's great to be your teammate. Uh, I'm glad to be joining you here, Bob. Okay, good. Uh, you know, you're a lot smarter to be than me on today's topic, so I appreciate you co-hosting. Uh, the book Minding the Brain contains a number of fascinating chapters addressing the question of whether our minds are more than our brains. Modern evidence and arguments suggest that we are more than computers made out of meat. Our brains don't define us. One of the outstanding chapters in the book is by Doug Axe that deals with so-called idealism. In a nutshell, Dr. Axe summarizes idealism as the belief that, quote, reality exists exclusively of minds and their ideas. We're fortunate to have Dr. Axe as our guest today on Mind Matters News. Here's a little bit of background about Doug that will impress you. Uh, he is the Rose Endowed Chair of Molecular Biology and co-director of the Stewart Science Honors Program at Biola University. He is the founding director of Biologic Institute. He's the founding editor of Biocomplexity and the author of Undeniable, How Biology Confirms Our Intention That Life Is Designed. And I have read the book. Well, I didn't read it. I listened to it. And I recommend it highly. And I'm sure it reads as good as it listens to. It's, a, it's an excellent book. Uh, after completing his PhD at Caltech, Professor Axe held postdoctoral and research scientist position at the University of Cambridge. Doug, welcome to Mind Matters News Podcast. It's great to be here. I don't play the bagpipes and I haven't heard Brian. I'd love yes, to hear that. Yes, at some point. maybe. A little bit of harmonica, maybe. <laughs> Okay. You know, Brian, I tell you what, since you are a lot more knowledgeable on this topic than I am, so I'm going to hand the steering wheel to you for a while. Okay. So you go ahead and begin be, begin the inquisition of uh, Dr. X. Okay. All right. Let's, let's do this. Okay. So, uh, Doug, we are here today to talk to you about your chapter in our book, Minding the Brain. Mm -hmm. uh, the title of your chapter is Of Thinkers, Thoughts, and Things, A Common Sense Defense of Idealism. Mm -hmm. And this chapter uh, fits in the overall structure of the book. The second unit of our book, our book's an anthology uh, with overall uh, 25 chapters. And uh, yours in, is in the section where we talk about a, a number of different philosophical approaches to, the, uh, to philosophy of mind, uh, including dualism, a couple types of dualism, and then idealism. And this is a this 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 philosophy idealism might be one that's least familiar to to people. So why don't we just start out with a overall description, big general description of what is idealism? Sure, and it might have it has as any philosophical idea there are nuanced variants, but I'm just focusing on um, what I'm calling a commonsensical version of idealism. It's not I'm I'm not really principally I didn't write my chapter to convince professional philosophers so much as to convince hopefully thoughtful people who are really interested in, in the matter. And so, and if I could interject, Doug, yeah. that's the reason your chapter reads so well 
it's written to the to the educated reader, I think. So yeah. Anyway, it's very well written. That's what I'm aiming for. So so hopefully. So in a nutshell, idealism. Well, let me go back to these three categories: thinkers, thoughts, and things. And I throw that out there because I think it's a good way to get your head around this. Um, if you ask people what are the buckets into which absolutely everything that's real fits. Um, a reasonable crack at answering that might be, well, there's these three buckets. There's thinkers, there's thoughts, and there's things. And they seem to be distinct because uh, thoughts don't think. Thinkers think thoughts. And things are the hard material things that are outside of us. So us human thinkers, we think of ourselves as being a thinker on the inside, looking at the outside world. And the outside world consists of things. And of course, other people. And so there's a thinker that's a part of every human body that I see, every living human body. So those seem like a reasonable three bucket uh, comprehensive view of what's real. But there's problems if you, if you run with that three bucket view. And there's different philosophical views about, well, if it's not those three, then, then what is it? And we'll probably talk a little bit about materialism or physicalism, which is the idea that really there's only one bucket. And that's things. And thinkers are just an example of things, evolved things that have evolved uh, complex behavior and maybe consciousness. And uh, thinkers doing their thoughts are just really things doing computation, a brain doing computation. That's one view. Idealism is about as diametrically opposed to that as can be, because idealism says really there's two buckets, and it's thinkers and their thoughts. And that the things that we're thinking of as things, you know, cars and, and, and buildings and um, planets and stars, those are actually thoughts. More specifically, those are divine thoughts. So the thoughts of God, when he created, he's really thinking things into existence. So idealism is this idea. It's, it's really opposite of materialism, physicalism, in that instead of rejecting or subsuming thinkers and thoughts within things, it subsumes things within thoughts. So everything that exists by this view, and it's a view that I, I hold, I'm not just academically talking about this, um, everything consists of thinkers and their thoughts, basically. Okay, that's helpful. Um, and as I understand it, that the there, there are historically different philosophers with slightly different flavors of idealism, but the the variety that you're most interested in is one proposed by uh, Barclay, as I understand. Is that right? Well, Barclay is, is kind of the main person you think of, Bishop Barclay. So he's he's writing in the early 1700s, yeah, early 1700s. Okay. Uh, he's the most probably the most famous proponent of this. More uh, recent, Jonathan Edwards is another proponent proponent of a version of idealism, but they're slightly different flavors. There's a epistemological or phenomen uh, phenomenological version of idealism, which is basically saying uh, it's, it's not so concerned about what is fundamentally real as it is about how do we know about anything being real. So there, that's what epistemology is. It's, it's, it's the philosophy of knowing how we go about knowing things. And I think you can very, very uh, quickly show people that Although we all think that cars and, well, most of us think that cars and trees and plants and stars are real, we only come to know that through conscious experience. And we're not directly 
uh, experiencing these physical things. What we're directly experiencing is the conscious experience itself. And so if you want to be sort of a skeptical uh, epistemologist, you might say, let's, let's, let's start with what we know is true. And that's the thing that we most directly perceive. And, and those would be the objects of conscious perception. And then we can work out what the other things are um, or whether they're real or not. But we, we start with what we think is most basic and most securely known. And that would be the objects of conscious perception. Uh, my my take on this is more that that becomes a very philosophical project to argue about uh, what we know and how we know it, or it can be. A more commonsensical approach, I think, is to say, okay, um, let's not worry about whether we can prove things. Let's just say, let's ask ourselves, what is likely to be the most correct picture of reality? And we're not going to worry about whether we can produce formal proofs to show philosophers, yes, this is the correct view of reality. We're more interested in um, satisfying our own curiosity about what kind of a world is this that we live in. And so we're going to be willing to accept things just because they make a whole lot of sense and their their opposite doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's kind of the commonsensical nature of this. And that, that's where I land. I think um, it's real. I think that um, the best picture of reality is the idealistic picture and I'm not so much interested in um, convincing philosophers as I am in hopefully convincing people who just want to think about it, that, that this is a clear way to think about things and it's probably correct. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, I know you know people hearing this for the first time will be trying to compare it to other ideas that they've, they've encountered. And they may have taken a philosophy 101 class where this, this idea of... Um, the the most direct knowledge we have comes through our sense experience and and this then sometimes there's introduced connected to that uh this idea that well we could simply be brains in a vat and be yeah. being fooled you know about the exterior world is is idealism trying to make a claim like that that the exterior world is not necessarily real in some sense or it could be we could be being deceived or is it different no and i think this is uh if we go back to barclay he got a lot of pushback from his contemporaries because there is when i first encountered idealism there is a weirdness about it because it sounds like you're saying hang on <laughs> you're telling me that rocks and mountains aren't real and that's not at all what i'm saying what I'm saying yeah. is if we get to the bottom of what is the nature of reality and what is the nature of the reality of a mountain, it turns out that I think the best way to understand it is a mountain is a mountain. It is what it is. And the physics of all the material in the mountain is what it is precisely because God thought this beautiful, massive, complex, intricate structure into being yeah. And every moment that I look at the mountain or climb on the mountain, it is what it is precisely because God is upholding that created thing. And it's created in his thoughts and it is, it is act it becomes actual only because he is upholding these thoughts and feeding the implications of those thoughts into other thinkers like me. So when I, you know, I'm trying to climb the mountain and I slip and fall and I injure my knee, the pain I feel, the effect it has on my knee, the blood coming out of my knee, those are all consistent with this intricate and uh, extensive, massive mathematical structure that is the universe. 
And in certain places that impinges upon my conscious experience, I feel the pain on my knee. I see the blood on, I have to do something about this. Now, those are all implications of math being worked out. And God is the one who who's working it out. So it's intrinsically, you can't, in any coherent way, be an idealist and and be an atheist. So atheists will hate this because I, I think that that's really clearing things up for me a little bit. Um, again, as the one that's coming kind of from the outside on this, because the first time you hear about realism, you think of the Matrix and the idealism. Yeah, the yeah, idealism, and you think of yeah, you think of the Matrix, and um, I. I was wondering, and I was going to ask you, but I think you've answered it. You have in your mind your thoughts and such, and in that thought world, I exist. And in my thought world, you exist. And I just wondered how that was coordinated. And I think you're saying that this is coordinated through uh, God's creation. That's the thing that ties us together. Yes, exactly. So it's not totally unlike The Matrix, but in The Matrix, in the film, you have humans having come up with a technology where they have, uh, I can't, I saw it a long time ago. You have whole humans. They didn't have brains in the vats, right? They had people and then they have all these yeah. electronic stuff that's hooked up to their brains. But the, but, right. but the people are like in this weird state where their body's being preserved and the big computer, the big uh, computer becomes an artificial reality and all of their experiences being mediated through some big computer. Right. Um, the idealistic view would be that reality is not, first of all, it's not malevolent. It's not someone trying to do something that tricks us. It's that God's intention in creating was, was, was his glory. But the biggest, most important part of that is creating beings in his image. And that's us. And the physical structure of the universe is really a way for us to live and move and have our being. It's, it's the way that we experience things, that we're meant to interact with each other, that we're meant to do the things that we do. Yeah, and I, it occurs to me that another difference with the Matrix view is in the Matrix, you have these humans that are, you know, sitting in little big, you know, t test tube devices and that, that are, that they're being mined for energy or something like this, I think is the motivation that's feeding the, the evil machines. But then the evil machines are, are, are feeding an illusionary, uh, illusory view through the human's brains, so they think they're living in an alternate world. So if you are in that alternate world and you you know you penetrate that veil somehow, you still have uh, sort of a physicalist view of the universe at that right. point. Yeah, um, is what's implicit, and that and idealism doesn't have that. You're saying no, the metaphysical stuff that the world is is built out of is it's the thinkers and the thoughts. That's what it is. Right when you push material things down to their very most fundamental level, you're left with the thoughts of God. So it, it ceases to be uh, materialism, material, the material world ceases to be its own ontological category. It's subsumed within the thought category. It might, it might be interesting to try to come at this um, from the thinking through the problems with physicalism um, which I know you go into in your chapter, mm -hmm. but that that helps uh, contrast idealism as well. And maybe we could go through um, dualism as well. So we could start with physicalism. You could give us a little bit of a sense about the problems with our conception of there being in this external physical world um, as a separate thing. Even even in a Christian's view, there's this idea of a separate, or a theist's view, there's this idea of a separate physical world existing. 
you could walk us through some of the problems with that. Sure. So shall we start with just physicalism? Yeah, uh, let's do that. Let's do so that. to be clear what we're talking about. So a physicalist, it, it could be called materialism or physicalism. It's often closely associated with scientism because there's philosophical reasons why certain scientists li uh, like to think of the world as being this way. But the, the idea, the worldview is basically that there isn't anything other than the stuff of physics would be a simple way to say it. So all the things that a physicist is seeking to describe with e the equations of physics down to the, you know, the Schrodinger equation down to subatomic and the very large, all of these things are, the physicist is aiming at a comprehensive description of all that is real. There isn't anything outside of that description. And this is conceding that we don't have it yet. So a physicist would say we don't have the theory of everything. But when physicists talk about a theory of everything as being the holy grail of physics, they really mean everything, that absolutely everything that's real would be subsumed within this physical account of reality. And where this breaks down is uh, there are several ways to show this. But uh, one way to show it <clears throat> is to show that the physicalist view of what I'm doing or what you're doing when you think is not compatible with your own view of what you're doing, what you think. So I, in my book, Undeniable, I have this exercise and I, and I go through this with students in the courses that I teach as well, to imagine that you are in a um, futuristic brain imaging lab and um, the scientists in this lab, they're all physicalists. They think, they think that there's nothing to a human other than the physical body. So they think that your brain is what's doing your thinking. And they have ways to image absolutely everything that's happening in your brain down to the, we'll say down to the molecular or sub, down to the atomic resolution in real time. So, um, and you're conscious and they're querying you in this lab and they can bring up uh, on displays, we'll say around around the, the laboratory that you can see, they can bring up images of every neuron in your, in your head, every synapse, every molecular event that happens in your brain as you're conversing with them. And the scientists, one of the scientists asks you to count to 10 and to meditate on numbers as you're counting. And so you start counting one, two, and they, they stop you when you say two and they, show up on the displays um, some images of, we'll say, your frontal lobe. that and, and it's colored by activation. There's more blood flow. There's a temperature difference here in the frontal lobe. These neurons have been activated when you're saying two. And they say, is this what you mean? We captured this image right as you were saying two, T-W-O. Um, is this what you mean when you say two? And of course, you laugh and say, um, no, I'm not denying that that was happening in my brain, but that's not what I mean when I say two. And they get a little bit flustered and they start drilling in further and further to individual synapses. This was firing when you said two. Is this what you mean when you say two? And of course, there isn't anything that they can project up there. There isn't any structural thing in your brain, any material thing that they can image and put up on the display for which you would say, yes. That's what I mean when I say the word to, T-W-O, because what I mean is something conceptual. It's not material. It's not in my brain. I mean a number between one and three. And in the book, when you say this to the scientists, they get all flustered and they insist that 
um, that you must be mistaken because there isn't anything outside the material realm. That's the only <laughs> realm that exists. And therefore, you're deeply confused. <laughs> and so you've got two ways. It seems to me that if you're in that position, it the, the good response would be, the best response would be, well, if I go in the direction of saying that, okay, maybe you're right, I'm deeply confused, then what does that imply about everything that I believe if I'm deeply confused? If I'm so deeply confused that I'm wrong about the meaning of every word that I'm using, then I'm comprehensively confused. And that means I should reject everything, right? Because all I have is this conscious experience and you're telling me I'm deeply confused about the meaning of it. That means brains don't exist. The universe doesn't exist. You don't exist. I don't exist. Everything goes up in, in a plume of smoke at that point. And I call this a self-defeating uh, argument. So the claim that brains, that a physical brain is doing our thinking is self-defeating in this sense, in the sense that it so radically contradicts your self-understanding of what you're doing when you're thinking that you would either have to reject the materialist view or acknowledge that you're insane. And once you do that, everything is gone, including including the premises that led to the materialist view itself. That makes sense. It would be wow. it, it would be quite it would be quite confusing to think about how you would add two plus two if what you meant was those uh, neural impulses. There, yeah, there is no conception. <laughs> yeah. Now, when I I've argued this with lots of people, and the, usually the first path to try to rescue materialism is say, is a representational thing where they say, well. I mean, computers do math and computers are physical. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is that representation only works if the thing being represented, the non-physical thing being represented is real. So we can't make math disappear by saying that, yes, I can, I can take a pen and uh, make a mark on paper that will be recognized as the numeral two, which represents the number two. And I can do math on, on paper that way. But the moment you say that, oh, the, the, re the reality is limited to the ink on the paper, now you've lost the conceptual realm and, and you've, you're back to the, to the problem of contradicting my own conscious experience and negating my sanity and therefore everything evaporates. So yes, it's true that we use physical things to represent non-physical things and language is one of those. Right now I'm speaking and it's causing little pressure fluctuations in the air. Microphone is picking that up. All kinds of electronics are happening. That's all physical. But when you're hearing me, at some point after your brain has processed, the auditory center has done some processing, at some point that is being fed to an immaterial mind, a thinker, as we're calling it, which is you. And you have to be understanding, re reconstructing what I'm saying in terms of concepts that are not physical. Mm -hmm. And if you try to force that whole thing to be physical, it all evaporates and becomes nonsense. Interesting. Yeah, that that's really interesting. So uh, is this the same or maybe a slightly different take on this where there's, there's a tension between uh, the way in which humans can reason from premises as part of arguments to valid conclusions and this like a like a, a, a an attempt at a physicalist basis for you know th those kinds of operations whereas you know if you're if you're talking about just the physical behavior of our brains and the neurons in our brains you're talking about you know what what sorts of physical laws or biochemical laws are are controlling that behavior that seems quite different than uh, having the the conceptual 
re- reasoning guide your thinking. Uh, is that a similar kind of tension or is that basically reduced to the same thing you're talking about? Well, yeah. So a physicalist will have to take this view that your thinking is a brain function and your brain is doing your thinking because a physicalist is not going to acknowledge the existence of a category outside of the physical, which, which I'm saying, um, your worldview is incoherent if you don't acknowledge this. <laughs> that that our mind has to be immaterial and our thoughts have to be immaterial because if you force them to be material, the whole thing goes up in smoke. And it starts with, okay, I'm crazy because the account that you're giving of me contradicts my own internal first-person perspective of what I'm doing so radically that I would have to throw up my hands and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm totally insane. None of this makes any sense. But then all the things that the, that the materialist assumes, that the physicalist assumes, go up in smoke with it. So the whole thing goes up in smoke. Yeah, makes sense. That's very interesting. Okay, so this, this is some of the problems with physicalism. How about, how about dualism? How does that fit in? Okay, so this, most people, when you talk about substance, uh, dualism are going back to Rene Descartes and Carti- sometimes called the Cartesian theater. So he views a human as being um, a physical body and then an immaterial uh, mind, soul, spirit that's like, it's, it's like sitting in this theater, the mind, soul, spirit is sitting in this theater and on the stage is all the, all the, um, immediate sense perceptions that are presented to this thinker that have come through the body, come through the eyes, through the ears, through the sense of touch, all these things. And they're processed by the physical brain. And then at some point, something appears up there on the stage and it's presented to this immaterial mind, soul, spirit that, that is the conscious you inside of, inside of your body. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a very much more correct way to view things than the physicalist way of viewing things. Because here in Cartesian dualism, you're saying, no, the your, your immaterial self is real and those thoughts that you're thinking are not material and your consciousness can't be explained as a, as a physical phenomenon. But where dualism runs into trouble, I think, is... It's called substance dualism because as a, as a philosopher or as a philosophy, it's really saying there are two distinct ontological categories. So ontology is the study of uh, being in its most fundamental sense. What are the things that are? What sort of kinds of things exist? And the substance dualist is saying, well, physical things exist and they have their own category of, ex- of existence. And then non-physical things like fingers and thoughts exist. So the the problem is that a dualist will say, yes, there are these three buckets and they're all distinct and thinkers and their thoughts are in this realm of the non-physical and things are in the realm of the physical. But when you go that way, somehow we have to connect our mental conscious non-physical experience with our physical body. And so something has to bridge a gap here because I, I'm standing at a desk here. I can feel the desk with my hands. Um, I think the desk is physical, but how on earth would a physical signal from this, my sensory perception, the, t- the feel of the surface of my desk with my hand, how would that 
get to the immaterial self that's supposedly in this Cartesian theater. Something has to mediate a bridge between atoms, basically, physical stuff, and a being that's not at all physical, a mind, soul, spirit that's not at all composed of atoms. And atoms can't do that, right? Because how can atoms reach into this thing that's not physical? And conversely, if my mind, soul, spirit is not at all physical, how, how would it grab atoms in my brain? So you have this bridge, you have this gulf, really, once you go the direction of two ontologically distinct categories, and you have the problem of how would you bridge this gulf? Mm. Now, one way to do that would be to say, well, God bridges the gulf. And in a sense, I think that's correct. But then you still have a problem with God because God uh, is described as a spirit being God the Father we're talking about here. And really, God, the Trinitarian view of God is in eternity past is not a physical, there's not physical substance to God until the incarnation. And that's the point where God, the son takes on flesh and has a physical body. So we have to, if we go back to the Cartesian theater, you have to somehow explain how would an immaterial God bridge this gulf between the atoms, the hard stuff, and the mind, soul, spirit, human being that's sitting there in the in the theater waiting for there to be an immaterial conscious experience presented to him or her. And it runs into the same problems. If God is not at all physical, then how does God interact with the physical? Um, it's not nearly as problematic, this view, as the physicalist view. But I think that these problems about how could there possibly be, how could there be a category um, of existence where God doesn't exist. And that would be the physical category. Hmm. And how would he move in that realm if he doesn't exist in that realm? And those problems go away if you say, well, wait a minute. Maybe this hard stuff, the atoms that we're talking about, they aren't fundamentally distinct from God's thoughts. Um, maybe they are God's thoughts. And maybe physics looks so much like math because it is math because god has come up with this mathematical structure that solves all so the idealistic take on this i think solves some very deep and thorny problems at the boundary between the physical and the non-physical even for the substance dualist very very interesting yeah this is uh this is great i'm, I'm learning a lot i have a bunch of questions i want to ask but we've kind of run out of time for um for this podcast, I want to ask about this is something to think about for next time. Uh, what about animals and idealism? Mm -hmm. are, are they part of yeah. God's plan? Um, and also the connection between idealism and quantum mechanics. I find that very intriguing. And this mm -hmm. is addressed in your chapter also. So thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Doug Axe at Biola University about uh, idealism. It's a chapter in the new book, Minding the Brain. And to find out more about information about the book, visit mindingthebrain.org. That's mindingthebrain.org. And so until next time on Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. 
The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.